Revelation 6, verses 1 through 17, the entire chapter. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him, was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for denarius, and three quarts of barley for denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell on the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide from us the face of him who is seated on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? The word of the Lord. You can be seated. Hey, just before we dive in today. um, 
First of all, uh, as you can see, man, we're, we're really getting into the thick of it here. And this is a rich and a dense book full of just a whole ton of details and beauties and stuff to, uh, to pick apart, which we can't possibly do uh, every week in one uh, 30, 40 minute sermon, right? So I'm starting to put some supplemental videos out there. I think uh, the first one came out this week and was mentioned in your Grace News. Um, just, kind of, I think we're calling it from the cutting room floor. And it's just things that I would love to, you know, dive deeper into during a sermon, but don't get a chance to. Uh, things that may be helpful for you as we're working through this book and just trying to make sense and understand it. I think the overall picture and the overall message of the book of Revelation is very plain, simple, and clear. The Lamb is on the throne, and he's going to bring history to its appointed conclusion. He will win at the end of the day, and it's our privilege to follow him. Okay, but... <laughs> Uh, boy, the book just gives us really rich and dense, uh, dense, beautiful and nuanced ways of making that point and fleshing out some of the applications for us. And uh, if you want to dive deeper into those, those videos are available. I'm also going to be putting um, on the back table when you walk in, I think moving forward, uh, a sermon notes. So you can start to see some of my own uh, just outline of things. If you need to go back to it at the end of the day, um, and they were out there, but probably nobody thought to grab them. So uh, some of the guys are here. If anybody would like a sermon note to follow along with, you can feel free to raise your hand. Don't feel like you have to. It gives it all away from the get-go. So uh, maybe you'd rather be surprised, um, whatever. But anyway, okay, so that's it. So look out for those videos. I was talking to Bill Baddorf earlier, uh, I guess it was yesterday. And had, I, had we realized that that first video was going to come out on April 1st, <laughs> I did it earlier in the week, but it didn't actually go out, you know, uh, on April 1st. Boy, I would we could have had some real fun with that and talked about how we had finally discovered that the mark of 666 does actually point to the vaccine. Who would have knew? Right? Or something along those lines. And then, sorry. Is it, is it too late to make COVID jokes? I don't know. Maybe we're dumb. I don't know. Anyway. Okay. So, uh, yeah, we're going to dive into this incredible chapter here in uh, chapter 6. Uh, and to do that, let, let me let me intro first by saying, uh, so Disney has come out with, a, Disney and Pixar, they've come out with uh, their new movie, Turning Red. You seen that movie? Anybody? A few? Not too many? Hopefully I'm not going to give away spoilers here on that. The kids are down in the basement, so it should be okay. Not the basement, but whatever. Anyway, um, yeah, it's the latest uh, Disney installment of Disney movies of young people finding themselves and discovering who they are and all this. And this movie is about this uh, young girl named Mei Ling uh, who is coming of age, reaching that delightful time where she's becoming a teenager and becoming a young woman. And as she describes it, is finding out that there is this well, messiness inside of her. She actually calls it a beast at one point. And in fact, this beast comes out whenever her newfound emotions or desires or impulses just bubble over the surface. Boom, she transforms into this giant red panda. Right? And again, just kind of illustrating coming of age and learning and things change, as it says, and you got all these new emotions, all these new desires and impulse. And part of the, the question being asked in the book is, what do we do with this messiness? Right? What do we do with this beast uh, inside of us? As the main character, Mei Ling, will say towards the end of the book, we all have this inner beast. We all have this inner beast that's just messy and loud and sometimes weird. And the question throughout the book is, okay, what do we do with this mess? And so, okay, there was the old traditional way that you would deal with your mess. 
And that is that you would try to get control of it. And you would yield it or submit it, maybe, to the expectations of your family or the culture that you grew up in and were a part of. And this is illustrated throughout the movie with this over-the-top helicopter mom, right, who's just really trying to micromanage, you know, all these changes going on in Mei Ling. And even wants Mei Ling not only to get control, but to slay this beast by some ancient cultural ritual. Uh, anyway, the, the other possible way of dealing with this is you just sort of let it out. And you... And you sort of indulge these newfound emotions and desires and impulses and you follow them where they lead and you sort of embrace them and you even, uh, as the movie will say, you even feed these things. Right? The closing line uh, of the movie, again, it's mainly saying we have, we all have these inner beasts and they're kind of messy and they're kind of loud and weird and some people never let them out. I let mine out and then here's the rhetorical question for the viewer, have you? Okay. Now there's this blatant irony in the movie, which I don't know if the movie itself is fully aware of, but there's still this sense, well, not everybody can let out their beast just kind of free will or whatever, because the mom apparently has a beast as well too, and this the mother's beast that comes out is actually very dangerous, and so the, you know, no, whoa, 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 you got to keep that beast under wraps, maybe even let that beast go, slay that beast, that might be, that might be a good idea. So there is still this very active, um, or whatever, however you want to call it. And it's, it's a decent movie. I actually recommend it for having some interesting conversations. But I'm more interested in the movie as being this wonderful uh, window into just our present cultural dynamics. Where, yeah, we would all recognize that we have this mess. Maybe we'd be so bold to call it a beast within. Right, but what do we do with that is the question. And some of the old ways of dealing with that beast, getting control of it, slaying it, submitting it to old cultural norms or expectations, right? That's old-fashioned. That's out of the way. The newfound path to freedom is you just let this beast out. You indulge it. You follow these emotions and these impulses and these desires. You see where they go. You feed it. And that's the pathway to life. Happy life. Our culture, too, uh, is terribly blind to our ironies in that, if you ask me, we're every bit, if not more judgmental as a culture than we have been, right? So we still have these very high expectations for what other people ought to do with their beasts and their messiness. But for me, the pathway of the good life is just to let it out, to feed it, to indulge it, and just to kind of enjoy who I am, for better or for worse. In other words, what is gone from our culture... And what seems to be gone from, you know, Disney movies or whatever come up would be any sense that I should be somewhat skeptical or somewhat critical of the mess inside. Or what's gone from our culture is any sense of a value of a season of like Lent, where we pause in sort of a sobering sense to reflect on the things that might not be right within us that drove Jesus to the cross. Or, you know, gone from culture are, you know, the type of songs that we sang here today where we say, rid me of myself, I belong to you. And, you know, these sort of things like gone from our culture is any sense that we would dare call some of that messiness within us sin. Sin that has certain ruinous effects in relationships, ruinous effects in our own lives, or ruinous effects 
in God's creation such that we would be liable before the creator. And we stand in a perilous place in our sin before the creator. Right? Gone is all of that. And I think Revelation 6 has a powerful word to say into speak into that culture. I want to try to make the case this morning that part of what Revelation 6 is intending to show is that when, yeah, when you let that mess out and you let that beast out, it actually has ruinous effects. And we ought to wake up to these ruinous effects that it has, especially the ruinous effects that these inner mess and dynamics have when they get all convoluted into systems of power. It's going to be one point that I think Revelation 6 is making. The other point I think Revelation 6 is going to draw out for us is this sort of uncomfortable sovereign authority of the land, and in particular, the uncomfortable patience of the lamb, who seems to to be patient and to allow this mess that has come out and wreaking havoc in relationships. He seems patient and willing to let that endure for a season, right? Which raises all sorts of questions, like how... You know, when we see suffering and we see evil on the world stage, it's not right. And we see Christ seemingly sitting back. Like, how do we make sense of his sovereign authority? How do we make sense of his patience? Okay, so those are the two things I think chapter 6 is going after. But to make that case, we've got to dive a little deep here this morning. So bear with me. That's why I have these videos up. That's why I'm trying to put sermon notes out there so that somehow we can try to stay together on this. And basically, here's the thing. We're kind of at this point of no return when it comes to looking at how we're going to approach this book as a whole and how we're going to interpret it, make sense of its structure and what it's trying to do here. Okay, again, apocalyptic literature, very symbolic, almost like a foreign language. And as a result, there are a whole varieties of interpretive approaches to the book of Revelation. And you maybe have your own approach to interpreting the book. You've maybe heard you know, one or two different approaches in other churches you've been a part of or whatever. And that might create a tension for you or whatever as you're listening to me and say, well, that's not quite how the other guy approached the book. So anyway, some of those videos, again, will explain some of the differences. I can't do all that here. We're just at a point of no return uh, where we're just going to, I'm just going to dive forward and hope, and hopefully you can track with me and, and stay along. And to try to make some sense of where I'm going here, again, I'll just say this. That one way to view the book of Revelation is to view it as this unfolding, sequential, though symbolic, uh, unfolding of events that are soon to take place in the future, whether it's the near future or a distant future. Right, So from chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, all the way to the end of the book, it's just one story that is unfolding sequentially that will give us a picture into what is yet to come. Okay, That is one way to view the book of Revelation. If you ask me, there are more than one problem, more than one problem with that view. First and foremost is that that's not really how apocalyptic literature works. Like if you think about the other apocalyptic books in the Bible, like Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, there'll be all sorts of apocalyptic symbolic visions. And these visions don't all just unfold chronologically. Oftentimes the visions circle back on themselves or overlap with each other or give you another perspective on the same window of time. Right? Apocalyptic literature in the Bible 
apocalyptic literature outside of the Bible in the ancient days, it just doesn't tend to unfold sequentially uh, in that way. Another problem that you're going to run into is that you're going to find certain clues in the book of Revelation as we go along where there seems to be, yeah, these multiple visions, these multiple perspectives on history, and oftentimes, yeah, they don't just follow a straight linear path. Sometimes it seems like we're going backwards in time. Sometimes it seems like we're jumping forward to the future, or sometimes maybe we're even talking more about the present life of the church. And for me, the reason for that is, this is how I'm approaching the book, as I've mentioned, that Revelation is multiple visions or multiple sequences. Sequences of seven, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. That each vision and each sequence gives us a symbolic look at the full span of time from Christ's resurrection and enthronement, his first victory, and his final victory when he comes to consummate his kingdom and restore his creation. Okay? Let me say that again, because that might not be the perspective you brought into the room with you today or you've heard before, but my perspective is, is that we have multiple, and it's not just mine, by the way, there's a whole, anyway... The perspective we're going to be working with here is that Revelation now is going to unfold as multiple visions, multiple sequences that each themselves give us a look behind the curtain at life in this full span of history from the first victory of Christ to his final victory. Okay? You with me? <laughs> All right, this side of the room is with me. I don't know about you guys. Whatever. All right. Let, let, let me show you how this plays out just real quick in, in the chapter we're in here in, in chapter 6. All right. Here we are, the cycle of seven uh, seals. We actually don't get all the way to the seventh one because there's an interlude in chapter 7. The seventh seal comes in the beginning of chapter 8. We'll get there in a couple weeks. Uh, but here we've got the first six seals of this cycle of seven seals. And if you look at the beginning of the passage... Right, we told, we're told about this lamb who comes and open up the seals, which ought to, ought to, ought to uh, automatically remind us, okay, that this actually isn't the beginning of the scene. Right, the beginning of the scene was two chapters ago in chapter four, where we get the setting. You know, where we caught a vision of the heavenly throne room. And we saw the throne at the center, and we saw there's one seated on that throne, and we saw that he holds in his hand this scroll which contains the summation of his plans for history and redemption and the judgment and renewal of his creation. Right? And his scroll is sealed up with seven seals, which then begs the question, okay, so who is it who's going to be worthy to open up these seals and unfold the plans that the one on the throne has for his creation? Which brings us to this lamb who's looking kind of slain-like. And yet is the lion who has conquered through his own death and resurrection. And now this lamb is ascending to the right hand of the one on the throne. And he's grabbing that, seal, that scroll and he's beginning to unlock these seals to unfold God's plans and purposes. And, okay, we were told in chapter 4 that this is, un, this is the beginning of that period of the latter days or the last days which we looked at, according to the New Testament, in multiple places, begins with the resurrection of Christ. 
Right, so in other words, what you have here in 4, 5, in the beginning of chapter 6, is the initial victory of the Lamb and His ascension to the right hand of the Father on the throne to grab that and to begin to unfold God's kingdom purposes. In other words, with the beginning of this opening seal, in this view, we're going back to that first initial victory of Christ. And okay, you look at the end of how this chapter closes up. Uh, and you've got this at the end of chapter 6, beginning of verse 12. You've got this picture of the sun going black and the moon going red. Neither one of them is really shining all the light. Stars are falling out of the sky. The sky is being rolled up like a scroll. Actually, you've got your Greek New Testament there. I think that's the word, uranos, uh, which is actually literally saying heaven is being rolled up like a scroll. And there's an earthquake, and everybody is getting all nervous. And what's going on here? Got my slide? <laughs> I get to show you more pictures from my trip in Israel. <laughs> uh, this is from on top of the Mount of Olives. Right, Bob? <laughs> um, this is uh, actually when you're coming into Jerusalem, when they bring us into Jerusalem towards the end of the trip, you stop here and you look out, and there's the old city of Jerusalem. That's the Temple Mount there. But this is looking at it from the top of the Mount of Olives. Go to the next slide. Uh, there's a, an olive tree grove. Maybe similar to the Garden of Gethsemane at the base of the Olive Grove, uh, Mount of Olives, where Jesus would have gone on the night that he was betrayed. I think I have one more picture. Yeah, okay, so this is a view of it from the other side. Now you're actually in Jerusalem along the wall, and that little mount, there's my shadow, <laughs> that little mount on the left there, that's the Mount of Olives. I just wanted to show off that I was there, and I can show you that. <laughs> but, okay, that's all I got. <laughs> but actually, okay, so there's this a discourse that Jesus does on the Mount of Olives called the Olivet Discourse, or this teaching that Jesus gives to his disciples in Mark chapter 13, Luke 20. And as part of this discourse, he gives them some indicators of symbolically what's going to happen when the Son of Man returns. So, for instance, uh, in Mark 13... Uh, where we are in the coming of the Son of Man. But in those days, what's going to happen? The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Or Luke 20, verse 25. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, the stars, and the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people with fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming. Okay, so we come back into our passage here in Revelation chapter 6, and we get to the end of the cycle, right, the sixth seal. Well, look what we have happening here. <laughs> We've got the sun and the moon going dark. We've got stars falling out of the heavens. We've got an earthquake, heaven and earth being shaken. And then sure enough, too, we have people getting scared and running into the caves, fearing for the great day of the judgment of the one on the throne and the Lamb has come. In other words, do you see it? How we're, we're moving from the beginning of the latter days. And the resurrection of Christ is enthronement at the right hand of the Father, taking the seals and unfolding it. And then at the end of the cycle, we have this picture of Christ beginning to return. I would love <laughs> to go a little bit further with you here and continue to unpack and make that case for you. But I can't do that. Watch the videos and we'll try to, <laughs> we'll try to work our way through that. The point is, again, 
this cycle is giving us, is pulling by the curtain and helping us to see from one particular angle what is going on behind the scenes in this history from Christ's first and second victories. And so what do we see happening? Here's the question for today. One of the questions. <laughs> well, takes the first seal, and out comes this white, whore, white, white rider. Not to be confused here with purity. Uh, white is also throughout the book a symbol of victory and conquer, conquering. And that's what this white rider does. He comes out and he conquers. He's given a bow, a crown, authority to come out and conquer. Conquers lands, territories, people, nations. Okay. And then here comes a second seal. Pop that seal open and out comes uh, a red rider. And he's given permission to take peace from the earth. And to lead people in fighting and warring with one another. People against people, nation against nation. And here maybe, if I'm in the ancient church, some of this is starting to sound familiar, right? Because you're living in the Roman Empire, which had gone out and pretty much conquered the known world at the time. And as it's doing that, it's going around proclaiming its great gospel, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, right? And as that is, we conquer you and bring you into the, our empire, you should be thanking us because we're bringing you into the great peace of Rome. Okay, the problem was that though by the time Revelation is being written, uh, people were starting to know, that's not exactly the case here. In AD 68, Emperor Nero dies. He commits suicide because there's a whole lot of unrest going. And the year that follows, which is right around the time that Revelation is written, by the way, uh, the nation or, or the empire of Rome is, being, is plunged into bloody, violent civil war. In the year immediately following Nero's death, you have four emperors who ascend to the throne. <laughs> And there's four because one guy it takes over the throne, but then you know some other guy from the south brings his his people and his whatever his military, and he enters into Rome, storms the gates, kills that emperor, and then he becomes emperor. And then somebody will come from the east, and he'll bring because they want the throne, and so they'll bring their legions and they'll bring their military, and they'll come into Rome and they'll conquer and they'll take the whatever the emperor, and they'll put him to death. And maybe all this this happens four times until finally Vespasian from the south actually comes in, gets the throne, and is able to secure power for 10 years. But all during that, there was this bloody, brutal civil war for this period of time, from this year, from 8068 to 69. People fighting against people, the nation, the whole empire fighting, almost borderline collapsing in on itself. Again, this Pax Romana, eh, it's not really holding, holding water a whole lot. Anyway, third seal breaks, and out comes uh, this uh, black rider, and we hear a voice that says, uh, a, den- a denarius for a quart of wheat, and a denarius for three quarts of barley. Uh, a quart of wheat, three quarts of barley, that would have been the bare essentials that you need uh, to survive for a day if you're just the lowest of the low. You're just a common, ordinary peasant person, right? And a denarius, like that's a full day's wage. This is 10 to 12 times the going rate for wheat or barley. This is a full day's wage, right? So your full day's wage, everything that you just worked for today, is only able to now provide for the bare essentials. You have none left over for a nice vacation or whatever. You have maybe not even none left over to, I don't know what, provide for your family or whatever. In other words, these are famine prices. It's coming with the ability to unleash famine. Which again, what sort of happened? As a result of conquest sometimes, 
You know, military would come in, conquer a certain land. The military would feed off of the fruit or the harvest of that territory. Or they might take of the fruit and the harvest there and send that back to Rome. For Rome or for Rome to disperse among the Roman Empire, however they wanted to do that. And when they would do that, when they would take of that harvest, that would make the supplies very lean there for that local community. Make it difficult for them. Drive up demand. Drive up the prices. Who of us is not mindful of this today? Every time we go to the gas pump, right? War is breaking out in certain parts of the world as a result of you know embargoes and restrictions and all that. Um, prices of gas climbing up. Those dials are spinning a lot faster than I ever saw them spin before. I give a token nod to Vladimir Putin. Thank you, sir. And uh, right, and then you're realizing, okay, so that means that now the cost of shipping food and trucks by trucks across, that's going to start going up, and which means the prices of food itself is going to start going up, right? This is sort of what happens when war and conquest and violence, right? right? There's, there's collateral damage. We actually find out in that third rider. Oh, but don't touch the olive and the wine. Maybe that's you know the more luxury items. And that's the, the the stuff that your ordinary common peasant uh, didn't avail themselves of a whole lot. That would be for more those who have means and the ability to do so. And maybe uh, this is just a picture of sometimes the income inequality that happens as a result of broken systems and structures. All right, that those who have means and those who have opportunity and wealth and resources increase in that while those who don't suffer. Maybe, maybe not. You can look into that however you want to. Fourth rider comes out, breaks that fourth seal, and out comes this pale rider. And he's kind of like the summary rider, and he just is able to uh, inflict the ultimate weapon, death itself. Death by the sword, civil war, death by famine, death by plague, Whatever it is. And so, okay, here it is, right? In this cycle that's pulling back the circle, or pulling back the curtain, sorry, to show us a little bit of life behind the scenes during this span of history, uh, what we're seeing is that though life can be very beautiful and full of joys and blessings and wonderful things, something has gone terribly wrong here. And there is something terribly broken that has been unleashed. As the messiness and brokenness of human lives has just been fed and let out, and has commingled with systems of power and authority, whatever, it is just wreaking havoc throughout God's creation. And again, you know, what I'll say here, this is where the book has some of its real power. Put yourself in the mindset of the early church. Right, the early church who was receiving admonitions and warnings all the time. Right, Think about those early letters that we saw to those early churches. Hey, you need to remain faithful to Christ. You need to en- have patient endurance and stay aligned with the true king. And watch out for these other, whatever, gods, systems that would tempt you to devote your allegiance to them and would tempt you to bow the knee to them and would tempt you to compromise or to flirt with them and to worship them. No, you're a servant of the king and your job is to give faithful, patient, enduring witness to him. We talked about this when we were working through those letters. You know, what would it be that the early church would have been tempted to worship? 
or, to temp- or tempted to flirt with and compromise with. It would have been the systems, of, it would have been the Roman Empire with all of its strength, with all of its might, with all of its promises, with all of its glitz and glamour. You know, and part of what these seals are doing is just pulling back the curtain and say, okay, do you see what's happening here? You see as a result of conflict or conquest, you get civil war, you get famine, you get death. Why would you ever bow the knee to this? Why would you ever compromise this? Why would you ever question the need to stay devoted to the true king? It's a message not only for the ancient church, it's a message for us too, I think. It seems like our culture is infatuated with political power and we're convinced that political power is the means of solving all of our ills as a nation or all of the world's ills or whatever. And yet we're seeing at the same time that that lust or obsession with political power is wreaking all sorts of havoc. And that now politics, right, we all know is this great divider of our country and right, is this great divider of families and communities, this great divider of even churches. Or think a little bit of like uh, uh, the church in China. We've been learning a bit about the church in China from Binny and Wong and Corey and Xiaomei and Asia and Zeno are talking to me about it a little bit on, on Friday. And then and in China, right, there's two quote-unquote Christian churches. The church that's controlled by the state and the church that's gone underground. They've gone underground because they think that the the mainline church has been forced into all sorts of improper compromises as a result of aligning with the state. And they've gone underground because it's dangerous for them to do to be above ground. <laughs> right? The pastors are being imprisoned, families are being persecuted and suffering. And I would imagine for that underground church, right, the temptation would be, hey, it's really that bad just to compromise a bit. And maybe we don't talk about Jesus as much. And maybe we dial down our testimony to him and the way we talk about the evils of society and sin and all that. Maybe we, wouldn't it be so bad that just to compromise that and, you know, get back into the established church so we could avoid the hardship that we're experiencing? It's a fair question. <laughs> but again, we're going to pull back that curtain and say, why would you align? With these broken systems and these broken structures, stay aligned to the king and what he calls you to and what he asks of you. Oh, man. All right. Yeah, it's 11.05. This is why I'm creating these videos. I thought I bit off more than I chewed today. I was originally going to stop the passage here, but I told Matt, ah, just read the whole thing because you got to see the whole cycle. So just bear with me for a few more minutes. Uh, the other tension of the passages, okay, or the great unanswered question here is if, okay, if we're going to say that this is the unfolding of all of history in this time, okay, what do we, how do we make sense of the fact that it's the Lamb who's opening these darn seals? Or what do we do with the fact that it seems like each of these writers is given permission to go and do what they're doing and to go and to wreak their havoc? In other words, again, here's that question. How, how do we hold this tension of this insistence? Know that the Lamb is on the throne and He is fully sovereign over the purposes that God has and He has sovereign authority over how this history is going to play out. And yet, as He starts opening those, these seals, things don't get better. They get worse. It seems like. Uh, 
Well, I would want to say a couple things. First of all, the book of Revelation wants to clearly show, and I think chapter 6 wants to clearly show you that, yes, well, all that is happening still falls under the sovereign authority of the Lamb. None of this is happening outside the realm of the sovereign authority of the Lamb who has conquered and has taken this scroll and is now beginning to unfold this scroll. Dare we even say there might be a purpose behind it? You know, like when I go to the doctor, and, you know, if I say, doctor, I've got pain, you know, in my arm, and numbness in my arm, we'll fix that. You know, he does some tests, and he comes back into the room, and he says, actually, we find out there's a much bigger problem here. You've got some discs in your back that are all out of whack, and it's pinching nerves and shooting pain. Or we find out that you've got a blockage in your, and then blood's not getting down into your arm the way it needs to. And we got to go in there, we got to clean up, you know, or open some up, up with some of that blockage. Right? It's almost like maybe what you have here is, okay, before we get to the final consummation and the new creation and, God, and Jesus putting all things back together, it's almost like we first have to be convinced of the need for that. You first have to be convinced of a need for one who is going to come and restore and reclaim and to judge. And so it's almost like under the sovereign authority of the Lamb, evil is being allowed to do its worst, show its full colors, doesn't solve the problem, doesn't get rid of the tension, doesn't get rid of the questions, which leads to this, just this sort of last part of the chapter that I want to highlight, this scene that, ha- that happens in the throne room where you see the souls of those who had died in faithfulness to the Lamb come to life, and you see those souls gathered underneath the altar. The heavenly throne room is pictured sort of like a temple, so you've got altars in there. I don't know if this is the altar of burnt offering, where you would come and you would sacrifice an animal and its blood would run down and we would, and it would collect under the altar. So maybe indicating that these souls were sacrifices for the sake of the king of the kingdom. I don't know. Or uh, it could be the altar of burnt offering, which would also be in the temple. We would light, uh, sorry, a burnt incense, not burnt off- offering. Incense, and you would burn the incense and its smell would fill the air. And we've already been told in Revelation how incense is used as a symbolic representation of the prayers of the saints. And so maybe coming up from this altar are the prayers of these saints, which is exactly what they do. They cry out to God, how long? In prayer, they cry out, how long? O sovereign Lord, faithful and true, how long? Until you avenge and what's happened to us. How long until you judge the earth and you call out? This wickedness, and you deal with it, and you make your creation right again. How long? And look, there's so much we could say about this whole tension between the sovereignty of the Lamb and the existence of evil. That's for another time. But what I do want to say here is that what is very clear here is that to trust in the sovereign authority of the Lamb does not mean that you don't ask questions. To trust in the sovereign authority of the Lamb in the midst of hardship and suffering and evil does not mean that you can't ask questions, or that you can't wrestle, or dare we say you can't doubt or struggle with the pain that you're experiencing in light of the sovereignty of the Lamb. I don't know who I was I was listening to this week on a podcast. He said, you know, if you can read the headlines in the New York Times, 
on a day-to-day basis, or you can watch the 6 o'clock news of all that's going down in Philly on a day-to-day basis, and, and, and come away from that and never question the sovereignty of God, or never struggle in faith, or never struggle with doubt, that's a faith I don't understand, he said. And the thing is, that's a faith that the Bible doesn't understand either because the Bible is full of people, whether it's in the Psalms or whether it's in Daniel or whether it's in Isaiah or the book of Job, who are constantly asking questions to this God that they believe is sovereign and is authority. Right? Jesus himself is asking questions in the moments of his trial. Why have you forsaken me? The psalmist says, where in the world are you while this is going on? Or how long, O Lord, right? This prayer that's ushered from the base of the altar is the prayer that has been off the lips of God's people throughout the ages. How long, O Lord, faithful and true, until you judge and make this right? The other thing, though, that I want to point out is that the best that death can do is usher you into the presence of the Lamb and usher you into his good and perfect care. This is not the final installment, by the way. This is not the eternal scene here, right? Heaven's going to be rolled up like a scroll, and there's going to be a new heaven, and that heaven's going to come down to earth, right? So we're looking forward to new creation. But this is like an interim installment. Immediately following death, all that death does is it ushers God's people into his presence, where you hear the voice of one here, take this white robe and come and rest. I have my purposes. I have my plans. There's more to come. Just come and rest. And who hasn't experienced that comfort, right, when you go to a funeral and you're, you're mourning the loss of a loved one and you're thinking about this loved one, in particular maybe a loved one who has suffered in their la- latter days. And as you're there at the funeral, you're mourning this loss that now you now experience. You're angry in the face of death. And yet there's this relief and this comfort that their suffering has ended. And they have been ushered into the perfect good care of their loving Savior. And I see Dennis Dragon. It's great to see you here, Dennis, right? And I think of I think of Lois, and you think of how she suffered in those, man, for how many years leading up to that? And I'm sure you grieve day in and day out, you know, at the loss of your beloved bride. And yet there's got to be a measure of comfort, I would imagine, just to think that she is rid of that, all that stuff that was wreaking havoc in her lungs for so long. And is standing face to face with her king and is enjoying his good, perfect, eternal care. It's the best death can do. We've got to wrap this up. The point is, what you see here is almost, for me, an uncomfortable patience of the lamb. I mean, I want the lamb to deal with this. Get it done. How long? Come on. The lamb is patient. We've seen this through the Bible. Right? God is patient when he says to Abraham, hey, I've got a great land that I'm going to bring you to, but it's not time yet. There's wickedness going on there, but it hasn't reached its full potential. We're going to wait on that. You see the patience of Jesus. His whole life is an act of patience, right? When the world has gone to hell and, and his own people are turning their back on him, yet he doesn't just put an end to it and say, okay, we're done with this. I'm going to judge and I'm going to avenge. No, he comes and he lays down his life in this great act of patient love. And he gives himself sacrificially to rescue and redeem those who have participated in all that's broken and not right in the world. So there is this patience to the Lamb. It's an uncomfortable patience. But you need to see. That's how, how does it, our chapter end. That, that patience eventually runs out. 
And this lamb will come and will judge. This lamb will come and declare what is right and not right in his creation. And this lamb will, as an act of judgment, rid his world of all that is not right. And so if you've been aligned with that, if you've been participating in that, you should have the response (laughs) that these sevenfold company of people have of fearing the judgment of the lamb that is coming. So again, I think the call from chapter 6 here is, is for us to, to wake up to the ruinous effects of that mess <laughs> that we all sort of have. Right? And if you're, you're here with us and you're just checking us out here this morning or checking out Jesus or what it means to be a part of his church, you're not sure what you think about all this, you know, all that. Um, and maybe you come from a culture that's not too inclined to look at the inner mess and call it sin or look at the inner mess and consider it something that needs to be submitted to someone else or whatever. And I would just say to you, well, okay, so the Bible is painting Jesus as a redeemer and a rescuer and a savior, one who has come because there is a mess that wreaks havoc in relationships, in your own life, and in God's creation, and he is coming to rescue and and redeem you of that. And so part of what it means to follow Jesus is that we let him be that judge, who judges what is right, not right, and not right. And we let him tell to us what part of our mess is, is okay to live with and what is not. And what I should, you know, try to submit, what I can let out, you know, all that stuff, right? We don't make those decisions ourselves, but to trust Jesus is to let him be the judge. It's to let him be the rescuer. And to remember that his death, resurrection, man, fully, from beginning to end, absolves us of any guilt, any condemnation that we might rightly deserve as a result of letting that mess out and participating with the broken systems of the world. And to follow Jesus means trusting that he is the one who has conquered the power of sin and death and that he can do that in you. He can set you free from some of the messy aspects of life that just wreak havoc. And to the rest of you who have followed Christ and part of his church, you know, a message for you to stay awake. Right? Don't buy into this system where we, you know, it seems to be the prevailing notion that sin, eh, no big deal. Or don't buy into this notion that, or, or, or don't be deluded to the fact that when this mess and when this beast comes out and it flirts with systems of power and structures of the world, man, it gets, it gets ugly. And, be awake to that, lest you would ever be tempted to bow the knee to that or to align yourself or devote allegiance to that. Be awake to that. See the beauty of Christ. Give him your full devotion. Give him your full worship. So that's it. That's chapter 6. You've, you've, again, bore with me as I've gone over time a little bit. I hope it makes sense. I hope you're with me. (laughs) The the simple point is the lamb is on the throne, and he's executing, and he's unfolding, and he's going to lead history to its appointed end, but he's patient. And, man, that patience gets frustrating. But let it be the opportunity to pull back that curtain and see the brokenness. See the brokenness out there, see the brokenness of here, to be awake to that, to be constantly bringing that before the throne and trusting it to Christ and making sure that our full and ultimate allegiance is always to him so that we might be good and faithful servants and followers of him and so that through our life and faithful witness, others might come to see the beauty of Christ and all that he's done 
We pray that God would do that in and through us in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.